So before we get into any kind of problem-solving mentality where we are figuring out how to live in this world in a specific way, let's first know with clarity and certainty who it is that's living in this world. Because so much of our problem-solving, so much of our searching for answers or solutions or guidance has to do still with the belief that there is a separate me looking for solutions to my separate problems or issues or dilemmas. That's not to uh, deny or negate the concerns that our individual life has. Not at all. It's not to say that you don't have an approach for your health or your finances or your relationships, what have you. It's simply to say that the frame of reference from which you approach those things is totally different. That you don't approach your concerns from a position of separateness because that will always, always, always entail fear. You cannot help, we cannot help perceiving things from separateness, but to experience them with fear. Separateness, in a sense, we could say, is fear. To approach the concerns of your life, relationships, health, you name it, from a place of unity, from a place of recognizing that you and the thing you are involved with is really the substance of consciousness. A whole nother dimension of guidance and intelligence becomes available to you. So we look at ordinary problems, but we look at ordinary problems with extraordinary sight then. And that extraordinary sight makes available to us so many different responses or solutions that we don't have accessible to us when we're caught in the trip of separation. So in a sense, our gathering is just this. It's for the purpose of self-recognition that we might actually come upon the true experiential knowing that I am not a separate individual being as I take myself to be most of the time, that I'm actually uh, an atmosphere of pure presence, pure consciousness. And our greater task or our greater path, if you will, is not only for that recognition to take place, that's the first part. The second is to allow that pure consciousness to come into full embodiment, that it informs our choices, our decisions, the way we see. And we move then from a limited point of view to an unlimited point of view. From the perspective of separateness, there are only a limited number of responses or understanding, pieces of understanding available to our awareness. The ego typically can only see things in terms of form. And if something doesn't have form, it doesn't exist. 
recognizing ourselves to be pure consciousness. We're no longer bound by the physical and conceptual limitations that define egoic experience. So how does one recognize themselves as pure consciousness? You know, I think that question has been plaguing people for thousands of years, ever since it has been known that it's possible to experience yourself as consciousness. There's been a dilemma about how, how that's experienced. What steps need to to be taken? What practices need to be done? And it's really a great um, paradox. (laughs) Because normally the thing that wants to experience itself as pure consciousness is the ego, the sense of separateness. And we end up in a somewhat confused spiral when something that believes itself to be separate is trying to experience itself as something that's not separate. So normally we confront a kind of impasse within ourselves where the ego can't achieve what it's trying to achieve And normally we're frustrated by that. We're frustrated that we can't seem to reach past our feelings of separateness and limitation into what I'm speaking of here as consciousness and the unlimited. So there's a couple of different things that arise within egoic experience. One thing that may arise is you begin to feel like the whole thing doesn't even exist, that it's all just being made up that someone's telling you there's this experience of yourself as pure consciousness, but you're not having it, so it must just be made up. So there can arise a great kind of skepticism or doubt as to whether or not it's even possible. Or, on the other hand, you could take a very believing approach and you could convince yourself that by believing that you are pure consciousness, that somehow that will translate into being pure consciousness. And ordinarily, our experience will vacillate between the two. You'll have belief for a little while. And when your belief runs out, you'll have skepticism again. You'll doubt the whole thing. And after your doubt grows intense, you'll realize the only logical option is to believe again. (laughs) Until that wears out, which you'll then distrust it again. And for many people, that goes on and on for a long time or if not a long time, it goes on very intensely within our being, where it tends to feel that when you're in that state of believing, you're very close. 
And when you're in the state of doubting, you feel so separate. But if we can see these two mechanisms of believing and doubting as just two mechanisms that the ego uses, that our sense of separateness uses, to try to achieve the oneness of consciousness, and to recognize them as both games. There's the game of belief, and there's the game of doubt. And that you really can't play one game to the exclusion of the other. Consciousness isn't involved in believing or doubting. In fact, if you could perceive yourself in a state of believing, and then perceive yourself in a state of doubting, your perceiving itself is the consciousness. So if we look, actually just very logically, consciousness is the aspect of ourselves that's not wrapped up in the game. It's not there in the believing. It's not there in the doubting. Or you could say, it's there when you're believing and it's there when you're doubting. But the failure, I'm using that word very lightly, I don't mean that in the typical sense, the failure is the recognition of consciousness. It's not whether or not consciousness is present. The failure is whether you recognize it or not. Because it is very easy to, to overlook it. Because it's really so simple. It's really so present. It's really so here. That overlooking it becomes the problem. Not a problem of whether or not it's here. Not a problem of whether I believe in it or not. It's a problem of, do I actually recognize it or not? So that's a big part of what we're doing here, is encouraging this recognition first. Without the recognition, everything else will be formed on a false foundation. If you attempt to believe that you are consciousness, and you want to build your experience off of that belief, eventually it'll be like you're increasing your belief, but then it'll run out and it'll turn back into doubt again, right? So it's important to understand the difference between believing and recognizing. If I ask you to believe in the sky, you can do that. I can tell you about it, you can believe in it, but it's not the same as recognizing it. When you recognize the sky, when you go out the door and look at it, you no longer need to believe in it. No belief is necessary. And this is the same, the exact same thing is true of consciousness. That so long as it is not recognized, there will be a need for the recognition. And simply for us to understand that belief is not the same thing as recognizing. Right? Seeing this model within yourself is extraordinarily subtle and difficult. And there are layers to it, you know? Because the egoic experience, the experience of separation, doesn't give up so quickly. And there's kind of a hidden belief in there that from my state of separation, I'm going to be able to recognize consciousness and use it for some purpose I have in mind. You know? Like, it's going to help me get a better job. It's going to help me get a better relationship. It's going to help my health. It's going to help my financial situation, whatever. It's going to help me be more saintly, more holy, whatever. And there you can see some of the subtlety that arises in trying to believe in consciousness. We almost start to treat consciousness as something that we can acquire 
as a, a, as a material, like money, and use it. But you'll find that if you take that approach, consciousness does not obey <laughs> that scheme. That consciousness will then appear to us very elusive. You know? It's like you'll feel that you have contact with consciousness, and you'll feel like, this is going to help me get a better job. I'm just using that as a silly example. You go to get a better job and you don't get it. And you're like, what the fuck, consciousness? What the hell? You know, and then you're blaming consciousness. You're thinking, consciousness was supposed to help me get a job. I was told that if I was in touch with consciousness, everything would flow. My whole life would unfold without effort. But I was just in touch with confident consciousness and I didn't get this job. So then you're angry at consciousness. And you see there, the doubt creeps in. I don't even know if this consciousness is even real, right? And this is kind of some of the sophistication of the game that goes on within us. You know, we all have our own forms of it. I'm just presenting general forms that go on. You know, and we could easily replace this idea of consciousness with God. You know, you believe in God, you want God to be real. Sometimes you feel really deeply in your bones that God is real. And in the next moment, where's God? Did I just make the whole thing up? Is that all just an imagination? But you can see that this confusion that, and these, these games that go on, they're really the result of an experience of separation. That we're still asking these questions, we're still focused on these dilemmas from the perspective of being an individual entity, a self, separate from other things, right? And at that moment, in those moments of separation, we are not abiding, we're not living as the consciousness that we really are. So all of the clarity and intelligence and all of the unfolding I mentioned that it has in store for our life, it's not that it's missing, it's that we don't recognize it. We're not seeing it. If we do see it, if we do begin to recognize it in, its, in the way it is present and playing here with us, we begin to recognize there's really no such thing as a failure. The only failure that exists is the failure of the ego or the failure of our separate sense of who we are to become consciousness. And that's a divine failure. That's an exquisite failure. Because if we realize what that means, we realize that it's one and the same as self-recognition that if I realize that my sense of separateness, being an individual me, cannot achieve being everything, that it can't happen. At that same moment, if we are able to accurately experience that failure, what we see is, I already am that. I can't achieve that because I already am that. You know? And that's the moment of recognition right there. That's the moment of recognition. At the moment when you realize there's nothing but failure for the ego, for the separate sense of self, right there is that moment of recognition. The rest of our journey is simply one of abiding in that, simply one of being true to that. Because we'll all notice, too, that if we do have a moment of contact with ourselves as pure consciousness, which I would assume a good deal of us in this room have. You also notice that 
immediately after that, you can immediately put back together a sense of a separate, distinct, individual me. You know? As soon as that experience of pure consciousness becomes a memory, which can happen one second later, now it's my memory of being pure consciousness. You get that? And you're back to being a separate individual me who now had the experience of pure consciousness. Which makes a really good story, which, which makes for some really good reflections on your experience. But you'll see that in that moment, you're no longer being pure consciousness. So you actually feel in it, even, even as you're recalling your, your past experience of pure consciousness, which is delightful, in that moment you feel separate. So you see how subtle this gets, the subtlety that goes on in our experience of self-recognition and the abidance of that. It's difficult to abide... Oh, let me say this differently. Ordinarily, we experience abiding in pure consciousness, our true nature, as difficult. Not because it's really difficult. Like I've already said, it's already here, it's already so. But what's difficult are all of the ways our sense of separateness keeps arising to try to take claim to that, to try to own that, to try to make it something known in the mind. This is making sense. This is pretty clear, right? Does what we're talking about evoke any questions? Sometimes here, this would be um, where very personal questions can arise around what is it in me that keeps compromising this uh, possibility of abiding as pure consciousness? Because there are a number of obstacles, very easily identifiable obstacles that will arise. Such as, if I abide as pure consciousness, nobody's going to want to hang out with me. And you know what that is? That's, that's our social being. That the sense of our separate individual self applying social pressures to consciousness. You know? It's like... If I abide as pure consciousness, I'm not going to be fun and uh, popular anymore. That kind of thing. You know, I'll lose my friends. I'll lose my family. So you can see that there's, there seems to arise a choice at that moment. Either I be pure consciousness or I maintain my friendships and family. But you see, this is not a decision at all. There is no decision between pure consciousness and having friends. That's, that, is, that belongs to the ego. This is a notion belonging to the ego that you have to make a choice between being pure consciousness and having friends. Pure consciousness has no such... It's not presenting that kind of uh, ultimatum to you. There's no reason for it to do so. You know? That would be like walking out, recognizing the sky, and then coming to the conclusion that you can... Uh, live with the knowledge of the sky or have friends. You know, it's an absurdity. But it arises in us quite strongly because there's a very clear sense that you have not been who you really are. 
right? That you've been going about being somebody you're not, which means that if you be who you really are, it seems to be different than the person that you've been being. So that's going to put pressure on your relationships in your mind. Your mind tells you, this is going to put pressure on my relationships. Because if I've gone about being, let's say I've gone about being a, a person who pleases everybody, right? And suddenly I start honoring this pure consciousness that I am, I'm no longer going to be playing the game of pleasing everybody. So what does that bring up in me? It brings up the fear that if I'm not pleasing everybody around me, they're not going to like me anymore. So now I feel threatened. Now I think I have a choice between being who I really am and continuing to please everybody. But that's not a choice. There's no choice in that. Right? But what mostly happens is we will revert to what feels known, to what feels comfortable. I'll go on pleasing people. Tomorrow I'll be consciousness. Today I'll go on pleasing people. You know? Maybe when I'm older, when, maybe when my hair is gray and I have a long beard, or I don't I guess that's not appropriate for most of you. Uh, you know, maybe when I'm gray and old, then I'll abide as consciousness, but for now, I want to have friends and fun. And there's, of course, nothing in existence that is saying, don't have friends and don't have fun. But this somehow arises as this very illogical, seemingly logical experience that you have to make a choice. And if you actually begin to confront that decision by not choosing, you start to feel this burning going on. And the burning is the burning of your old self. It's the burning of the self that you've constructed when you're not simply obeying it, you know? So it may feel like burning. You know, it may feel like if I actually continue to exist as the pure consciousness that I am, and I'm not moving into this habit of pleasing people, people are not going to like me, and that burns. There's a burning in that. You know, there's an intensity in that, which requires a lot of courage and strength and fortitude and will. So the whole question we end up with post-recognition is, will you be true to that? Will you honor that above all of the games that go on in the mind? And even if you've been compromised by those games, will you again return to recognition and being true? Because there's no fault. It's not like you're a sinner if you go back to pleasing people. It's not like you're condemned to hell, although it is a hellish experience. But the question is, even if I've spent 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in this model of who I am, recognizing that there's a sudden return available. You know? The sky is never missing. You can walk out and look at it at any time. And there's some pain, I think, too, in recognizing how we have not been true to who we really are. You know, So there might be pain in it. That's what I mean by burning, I guess, is the painful. Oh, right. Well, what, what will typically happen, like let's say you're on this path to uh, gain enlightenment. 
uh, you'll realize that you can't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every great master has said that um, they didn't achieve enlightenment, they simply lost their ignorance. And it's kind of like that, you know, is that if we come with an agenda of some kind, that we're in the game, the spiritual dance, in order to achieve something, we ultimately come upon a moment of failure. And we're very stubborn about that failure. We're extremely stubborn about that failure. There's, there arises in most people the sense that I'm just not working hard enough, or I'm just not persisting enough, or I'm just not focused enough, all the while sort of denying the obvious that you're failing and that's i mentioned that very briefly it's like if we can face the failure of making consciousness conform to our um, plan or our agenda if we can face that it's not going to cooperate with our plan then there's something that unfolds out of that something that you know moves right out of that the interesting thing is is when we acknowledge that it's not going to um, cooperate with our plan it and we fully accept that it actually cooperates with our plan <laughs> you know there's a way in which consciousness will just not give your ego control you know normally uh, like for me that was experience in the presence of a master where uh, it didn't matter how i tried to manipulate him he didn't play my games it didn't matter what game i tried i pulled every card out of the deck and he didn't have anything to do with any card. It was like I had a hand of cards and I was throwing one out and see if he would play a card, but he didn't play a card. And so when he didn't play a card, I'd try another card and he didn't play that one either. So I kept trying until you get to the end of the deck and it's kind of like, well, nothing's gonna work here, you know? But life is doing the same thing. We keep trying different cards. We keep trying different approaches, you know? it's like. I'll go the enlightenment route, and that doesn't seem to work, so let me come around here. I'll try the new job route, and that didn't work. I'll try, you know, so we try different routes. And ultimately, if we're sincere about this, we keep meeting with a kind of failure, and it's frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. Because we're basically seeing that the ego cannot penetrate into consciousness. Once we understand that that's what's going on, it becomes very liberating because you realize that your failure is a divine moment, that it's absolutely exquisite, that you can't fulfill the agenda that you have going. But along the way, it's, it's terribly frustrating. I mean, I don't, I don't know what other people experience, but I'm sometimes, I sometimes feel that nobody has ever felt the frustration I've felt about the whole thing, because, uh, you know, I'm saying that to be funny, but, <clears throat> just tremendous frustration about this inability to turn my ego into pure consciousness. And you can't do it. You just can't do it. No matter how you try, you can't do it. And there's a moment of acceptance that comes with that. You know, there's sort of a moment of like, oh, I can't create the sky. Oh. And a surrender then happens, you know. And the funny thing is, that's exactly the moment where we've dropped our agenda and our agenda gets fulfilled. But when your agenda is for fulfilled at that point, it's not the same. You know, it's like you wanted enlightenment, you couldn't achieve enlightenment, you dropped your desire for enlightenment and you achieved enlightenment. But now you're not looking back and saying, I achieved enlightenment. You're saying, uh, it didn't happen to me. <laughs> you're saying, I 
couldn't have achieved enlightenment because enlightenment is just what is. It's everything. You know, it's the sky. So it's an interesting dance, you know. It's the dance that goes with surrender, I think. And it really doesn't matter what agenda we bring. You can bring an extremely spiritual agenda, like I want to be pure love. I want to be enlightened. I want to know God. Or you can bring a very worldly desire. You know, I just want to make a buck or I just want to get a lover. It doesn't matter. But if you're involved in this journey, in this path, you know, you start to see that all of those agendas and desires, they just basically amount to the same thing, trying to become something that you already are. That's the frustrating part of the path. You're trying to become something you already are. Does that speak to you? Yeah, yeah. Nothing more frustrating than trying to become something you already are. Because you're faced with two things in it. You're faced with, you're already that. So that's kind of a relief. But you don't feel like that. And that sucks. So you're at this confused place between believing that you are that already, but not really knowing that you are that already. You know? And what most of us we will default to is belief. It's like, instead of, instead of being able to break through into the knowing, I'll just cling to my belief. Because it doesn't seem like there's any other option. So actually, what, you'll find, what we find in, this, in real spiritual paths is a, a gradual surrendering of all beliefs. And even that's frustrating. Because you get into the path and you're handed a set of beliefs that you hold on to. You hold them close. You hold them dear. Only to then later have to give them all up. You know? It's like being told that you are pure consciousness gives your ego something to hold on to until it's ready to let go of that one. You know? And by letting go of that belief, it's letting go of itself. <clears throat> so I feel like there are there are agendas that I'm not even aware of yet mm. <laughs> um, that's an interesting statement but continue Yes, absolutely. And that feels like I'm, I'm frustrated because I can see that I, I do I just have to be comfortable with, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but I'm in this place where I want to have clarity that I know something or don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, is that a form of control? Is it? The desire to know is not. The desire to know is pure. 
the desire to know for a specific reason is what complicates it, right? I know this very well. To know, the desire to know is so pure, it's so innocent. But if I want to know in order to be somebody who knows, that's a different thing. You know what I mean? At that point, that's where the agenda remains hidden. You know, there's always within egoic consciousness, there's always a little bit of a mix between a pure drive and the way it is subtly like compromised or co-opted by our ego. So this is a good example. Our desire to know is pure. If you follow your desire to know, it is what's leading you to know and discover the truth. It's leading you to self-recognition. But if you desire to know in order to be somebody who knows or in order to use that knowledge for some reason, you'll notice that that knowledge then remains elusive to you. And that's frustrating. And so uncovering that next layer of motivation, um, I'm not really sure why. Well, that's beautiful then. That's wanting to know for knowledge's sake. You don't, there, I think one of the things that could arise for a person here is that you don't have a motivation and that's confusing. You know what I mean? That you find yourself actually here wanting to know without an ulterior motive involved. And that's disorienting because we're so used to having an ulterior motive. Well, I'm kind of looking for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm like... As though you're supposed to have one. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. trying to like justify it in some way. Mm-hmm. And insert something. So, and that's kind of where I get to, well, I just don't see it yet. I don't see that. Like when I was saying I don't know my motivations, like I, maybe I just don't. Maybe it's so far under. I don't I think so. I think that what you're talking about is a conflict you have with no motivation. That you can't find an egoic motivation anymore. And, and there's some kind of feeling or sense that that's wrong or off. You know what I mean? Because I, basically at that point, you're at that point of completely letting go into knowledge. And... It's almost as you're essentially saying that no, I mean, the way I hear it is there's no remnant of your ego left, but it's, it's as though the programming of the ego is encouraging you to look for some thread of ego. Well, I'm doubting yeah. that that's really true. That you're on the doorstep of knowledge. Yeah. Yes. So right. I'm like, okay, no, there's got to be something. Right. Right. That's the pause at the doorway. It's like, door. you're at the door of knowledge, door is wide open, and you're saying, hmm, I think I better have a motivation that prevents me from going through that door. So then it's, it's a little bit about understanding what that hesitation is at that point. You know what I mean? Understanding why, why am I hesitating? Why am I waiting to cross through that threshold? Well, if you consider it, it'll, it'll, it should just bubble up naturally. It should just bubble right up into your awareness. That there's, I mean, normally a person will experience that if they cross that threshold, there's some kind of threat. 
there's something that feels threatening about crossing the threshold. Otherwise, we wouldn't hesitate. So somehow I'm interpreting that move. It's one of the ones is the example I gave is that if I consider being true all the way to myself, I'll lose my friends. That would be one such threat that arises, you know, is some sense that something's going to be lost if I cross through that door. And if we can accurately see or identify what it is that we feel is going to be lost and see that moment for what it is, then, then it's just right into the door. I mean, basically, the last thing to come up as you enter the door is trust. There's an essential distrust we have about the other side of the door. And the other side of the door is just home. I'm not talking about some weird, like, other dimension. Those do exist. But what I'm talking about right now is home, right? There's something that has led us to feel that being home is threatening, right? Our involvement with egoic separateness makes us feel that home is threatening. So there's a hesitation that arises in us there, a way in which we want to postpone it. We want to put it off just a little while. There isn't anything ultimately threatening on the other side. But you can see that, if, is that in a sense it threatens our separateness and that evokes this experience of distrust. I don't trust that if I let go of everything and move into the, into the house, into home, that everything will be taken care of. I still feel this fearful vigilance in a way to need to hang on to something. And it's, it's the most critical aspect of surrender. I keep having this feeling that if I was able to just be alone, <laughs> that I could make this, I could. If you take that message as an inner one and not an outer one, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I mean, I have been sitting with that. Mm -hmm. but. It, I guess it kind of came up even this morning in those like, dream times uh, later, and I was like, what if I just practice being alone? Um, what does that feel? What does that, you know, like being, not having any relationships or any uh, responsibilities or... You mean as an inner state? Not an outer experience. Yes, yeah, right. but it also arose as I got there through the outer. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yes, it was inner. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, yes, this is this is perfectly appropriate. This is right at the screen door of the of the door because what we find at a certain point is that for me to actually abide as who I am. It will bring up, see, we all think that our ego, our sense of separate self, has made our life work out. So it feels that if you cross that door, your life isn't going to work out anymore. Your relationships will fail, your work will fail, your ability to cook dinner will fail, your brushing your teeth will fail. You feel as though you're about to fail at everything it means to be human. So you, you bulk, you hesitate, you wait at that moment. Because that's, that's sort of the ace card of the ego. It's saying, if you let go of me, everything is going to come undone. And so we say, oh. But we have to see that lie for what it is. We have to see that 
it's playing that card as a very elaborate sort of trump card. Yeah? So basically it amounts to this. We develop a false self in response to our early environment. So that false self, false self we developed in order to please mommy and daddy and all of the rest of society. Now when you're at the doorway, you're, you're at the uh, threshold of letting it go, this false self. So what goes with it? All of your relationships to everything else that you've created. Everything. Your relationships don't go. Your mental relationship goes. Your partner will still be there. Your kids will still be there. Your mom and dad will still be there. Your friends will still be there. But the mental relationship that you're used to maintaining with them will not be there anymore. And that's the thing that feels so threatening to us. That's why when Katie's talking about aloneness, when you step into the vicinity of pure consciousness, it will start to make you feel as though you're about to be extremely alone, which can often be colored by the emotional quality of loneliness.